0: Hi, good morning. My name is Paris and I have the privilege of serving in kids' ministry. And today's scripture reading is from the book of Titus chapter two, verse one through eight. However, you must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine but teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. This is God's word.
1: Thank you, Paris. That women's Bible study video was crazy. Billy, you're funny today, dude. Uh. (laughs) Let's pray together. Lord, I'm so thankful for your word today that is so specific and so practical for us. I know, cause your word says it to be true, that every word is inspired by you and it is useful for our lives. And so we ask that you would speak to each of us, no matter what stage of life we find ourselves in. I also just confess that I need you, Lord, Uh, so you would anoint me. You would work in my mind and heart through my words to communicate not just truth, but truth in grace. We ask it in Jesus name, amen. I want to share with you an article that I read this week about pelicans. For many years, the article says Monterey, California, was what they called a pelican's paradise because as the fishermen would clean their fish, they would feed the entrails to the surrounding pelicans. I know it's a little gross, but just stick with me. So the birds, not having to fend for themselves, were not only happy, but they also grew fat and lazy. But eventually, entrails began to be utilized in other ways, and so the no longer used as snacks for the pelicans. However, when this change came, the pelicans made no effort to fish for themselves. They waited around and became malnourished and dangerously thin, many even starving to death. They had forgotten how to fish for themselves. There's actually a cool ending to this story that I'll share a little bit later, later, but how crazy is this? Because of the environment, of these birds, they literally forgot to do how to do and how to be who God had created them to be. The solution actually came when other birds would come and show them how to do what God had intended them to do. And for us, this is actually a beautiful picture of what it means to be a faithful and powerful presence in the world. Not to pelicans, of course. But for people, Stanley Harris, a professor at Duke University, says it like this, the only way for the world to know that it is being redeemed is for the church to point to the redeemer by being a redeemed people. The way for the world to know it needs redeeming is for the church to enable the world to strike hard against something which is an alternative to what the world offers. We serve the world by showing it something that it is not. In other words, our lives are a signpost that helps the world see who they were truly created to be, namely a redeemed people fully loved and accepted by God. Paul is writing this letter to the young pastor, Titus, who's one of his spiritual sons. Titus is pastoring this church on the island of Crete. And the island of Crete was full of people who were lost and dying with no clue that God had created them for a bigger eternal purpose. And now even some of those in the church had begun to teach a false gospel. So Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is instructing Titus how to lead in this crazy environment. He wants the church to be a people who are having an impact for the glory of God because the gospel is working its way out through their lives. And friends, when the gospel is lived out among believers, it acts like a magnetic force that draws the unredeemed back to God and back to what he intended for them all along. So what exactly does this look like when it's lived out? Well, in our passage today, we see this outlined in very practical ways, specifically as it pertains to the different stages of life. Next week, Tim will talk about the power of presence outside the church, in the marketplace, and in the workplace. But today, in our passage, we are talking about the power of, pres- of our presence inside the church. And the first thing we see in our passage today is the power of the older. Verse 1 starts out, You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. In contrast to the false teachers, Titus, you must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. What is appropriate to sound doctrine? Well, our passage tells us. And first it addresses the older man. He says, teach the older men. I just want to pause here to uh, clarify who we're talking about. Because when I was 20, I looked at a 40-year-old dude and I was like, that dude's going to die soon like he's at the end. And now that I'm almost 42, I'm like, I'm not going to die. Dude. I'm still an under man. So who's this talking about? Well, uh, for s- historically speaking, uh, this is about 50 years old. So for some that may fall a little over, <laughs> a little over. And for some that may fall under, but for the most part, this is a, a good rule of thumb here. Notice that it says older, not old, just older. So teach the older men. If you are a younger man or woman in the church, you need to understand the gift that the older men are. And I'm going to be honest, man, I I didn't understand the value of older men in the church and in my life until I was in my 30s. Maybe that's something to do with, you know, my messed up relationships with my dads or whatever, but I didn't understand this value, but we have to understand the value of this man. These men are a blessing, a gift to our church. And older men, you need to know that you are a blessing and a necessity to this church and this community and the church. We need you around. We need you not on the sidelines, spectating, waiting for like some young buck to do the thing. In fact, scripture doesn't actually... uh, afford you that luxury but we need you involved we need you in community groups participating and facilitating we need you ministering to the kids we need you ministering to the youth i'm so thankful for the older men that we have on our worship team we need you at our men's events older men we need you at our men's retreat coming up in march you are a blessing to the body of christ and here is how you ought to carry yourselves older men Paul says to the young pastor Titus, teach the older men to first be temperate. Another way to say this is to be sober-minded. That means not indulgent in anything except the gospel. In this context, it means that there should be nothing else dominating your life other than the gospel. Many older men have been able to retire or maybe semi-retire. And the temptation can be, oh, wow, I have free time now. I used to have to do projects for my job. And so now I will just do projects for myself or for my wife, if you're married, which is fine. But also... What a unique season of life you have when you actually have time and space. Remember when you had to be somewhere 40 plus hours a week, you didn't have a choice. And now you have a choice of how you can use your time. What a unique season where you can not just be about your business, but about your father's business. Not that you are only doing things in your life that have this very obvious direct kingdom impact, but the, the priority and the focus of your life is participating in the building of the kingdom of god does that mean that you have to do something super obvious and and visible like learn how to be a preacher or something or join the prayer team next week no those those things may not be your gifts it could be very practical i think of one man in our church um post 50 and he was a career electrician now he's retired quiet introverted I bet you couldn't pay him a million dollars to teach a Bible study in front of people. But you know what he does? He quietly and humbly shares Jesus with the people in his life. And he makes himself available with his very specific gifts and experience to serve the body of Christ. We at Reality have been able to do some of the things that we have done in ministry. We we have done because of men like this who show up and volunteer their time to do things like, man, I'm going to run wire and and connect outlets and and lights. This is the idea of sober-minded, a single-mindedness that has at its core, the gospel as its primary motivating factor. So the older men are to be sober-minded and they are to be, it goes on, worthy of respect. Another way to say this is that they are to walk with dignity, they are to be honorable, they are to be noble and they are to be men who value godliness and godly living and have a seriousness about it. The Greek word is semnis. It means that you're not frivolous. We don't need a culture of silly men in the church who are just like doing where, whatever, like going wherever the wind blows them. Now that doesn't mean that you don't smile and you don't make people laugh. That's not what this is talking about. It's not talking about like being stoic. It's talking about taking your life serious, taking your family serious, taking your relationships serious, and taking the gospel serious. And the older men are also to be self-controlled. That is someone who is self-di- self-disciplined and exercises self-restraint in all of his passions and desires. Now, I want to continue as we go out throughout this sermon to remind us that everything in this passage is only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God. You know like the don't try this at home? Don't try this by yourself. You're not supposed to try to white knuckle this fellas and you don't have to. Everything that God calls us to, all of us, men, women, young, old, He equips us for. So the older men are to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith and in love. Sound in faith means that there is a steadfastness, a consistency to their commitment to living a surrendered life to Christ. It doesn't mean that you're perfect, but as you span back and zoom out and look at the trajectory of your life it doesn't mean that there wasn't some blunders maybe even some big blunders but the trajectory of your life the trend was faithfulness and sur- a surrendered life to jesus but it's not just sound in faith it says here but also in love that there would be a steadfastness in your love we need older men like this in the church We need men who can come alongside us and instruct us and correct us, but with grace and with love. Because in a culture where older men are not generally known for their grace and love, this becomes such a witness to the love of the Father and the power of the gospel. We had a Host 50 year old couple over at our house this week. So a couple that's been at the church for a long time, but they're moving out of state. And so the, uh, we had the worship leaders and them over our house. We just worshiped with them. We prayed over them. We spoke into their lives. And something that kept coming up for so many of us was how we had experienced the love of our Heavenly Father through the life of this man and through his actions and through his words and through his steadfastness. I pray that as more and more believers come to this church and as broken younger people come to this church that they will encounter godly older men like this who are sound in faith and in love. Older men, what a privilege it is for you to be able to embody the love of the Father to the rest of us in this season of life. And that as you do all of this, that you would do it with endurance that is persevering faithfully and steadfastly until the end the passage continues on directing our attention to the older women in verse 3 likewise teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live this means similarly to the older men that the older women should live in a way that is worthy of respect and honor But it's not just that. It actually has a much more profound meaning. The Greek word for reverent here is only used here in the entire New Testament. And it means like a priestess. The idea is that the older women are to carry into life, into their daily lives, the demeanor of a priestess in the temple. In other words, older women, you are to practice the presence of God to allow your sense of God's presence in you and upon you and through you to permeate everything about your life. This is powerful stuff here, older women. In Jesus, you have been called up to this. To live as one who is so aware of God's presence in your life that it changes the way that you act, the way you speak the way you live and and I want to say this to you as well this is not meant to be a weight on you like oh my gosh I have to be a priestess like I don't have to be a priestess no 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 that's not the gospel the gospel says no 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 you are already this you're already this because of Jesus you're already approved You're already loved. You're already enough. You're already powerful by the Spirit. You already have the presence of God on you and in you. He's saying, so just live like who you already are. Live like who you already are. Live like the priestess that you are in your actions, in the way you carry yourself, in your attitudes, and in your words. Speaking of words, the passage goes on to say, teach the older women to Not be slanderers. This is kind of an intense phrase when you look at the original language. the the uh, The Greek word here is diabolus. Who does that sound like? It's literally the word for the devil. A good translation would be: Teach the older women to not be Satan-like in their speech. How is slanderous speech Satan-like? Well, in Revelation 12.10, it says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. The one who stands before the throne of God day and night, accusing us. And so when we slander one another, it's like we are coming into agreement with the character of Satan, which is exactly opposite of the character of Christ and opposite, ladies, of the character of a priestess who carries with them the presence of god but this would have been part of the culture in the decadent greco-roman empire on the island of crete you had all of these older women who the custom would have been they stayed at home uh and raised their children and their husbands had these career jobs but then their 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 kids grew up and they moved out of the house their husbands were still working and so they were left with all of this uh, idle time And the same thing was happening in the church. And so the gospel wasn't being prioritized. There was this idleness and idleness often leads to worthless conversation for all of us. But worthless conversation can be fueled by Satan and turn quickly into malicious gossip. And so it's important to recognize the seriousness of this. This is a strong warning to the older women. And the Lord would say, this isn't who you are. As a priestess, you don't have to let this be a part of your life. Paul goes on to issue another warning to the older women. Teach them, he says, to not be addicted to much wine. Again, these women had idle time on their hands, maybe even some of them feeling a purposelessness as their children had left the home, maybe even some loneliness with their children out of the home. And so they were apparently medicating with wine. In the first century, if you wanted to medicate with something, uh, you went to alcohol. That was your thing. If you wanted to numb out or relax or whatever, that was the the substance that they, they had access to. Unfortunately, in 2023, there is a plethora of substances, including social media, to medicate with. In fact, studies have shown that social media releases dopamine in the same way in the brain that alcohol does. And so the warning is the same for women today, but even broader, probably. And maybe you're here today, and you're in that same stage of life. Your kids are growing up out of the house, or maybe you're finally retired, and you don't have kids in the house, and maybe you find yourself with idle time on your hands. Maybe even lonely and feeling without purpose. Nowadays, it's a little trickier, right? Because there's so many things that we can like fill our lives with namely, oftentimes, social media, which is so ironic because social media has now become the number one place where the same kind of malicious gossip takes place. So there's probably a warning here today, whatever your substance of choice is, older women. And older men, younger men, younger women, you're not off the hook on this, right? Everything in this passage is is. Spoken generally to the whole church, but specifically applied to these different stages of life. It's not like, yeah, fellas, you get to, you know, be addicted to much wine and and gossip about people. This applies to all of us, no matter what stage of life, no matter what gender. And if that's you, I just want to say this. You don't need to be condemned about that. You don't need to, like, beat yourself up about, about that. But you do need to be honest if you're wrestling with this or if this has become a part of your life. You need to recognize it and you need to confess it. Confess it to God. You need to confess it to somebody else. And then you need to repent of it. You need to turn from it. It's destroying your life. It's ruining your life. And you need to turn toward God and rely on the power and the grace of God to give you what you need to walk in a better way. But he goes on, older women, this time though, encouraging the older women how to redirect their time and redeem this very special season of life. In fact, if you find yourself with a lot of idle time, older women, here is a wonderful kingdom pathway for gospel productivity and how to be a powerful presence as an older Christian woman. Into verse three. Teach the older women to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women. Older women, how can you redeem your idle time? teach what is good. It's not talking about doing what I'm doing right now. It's not talking about formal teaching. It means just come alongside and intentionally involve yourself in other people's lives, specifically the younger women. Come alongside the younger women and encourage them, exhort them, and by your example, show them a life that is worthy of the gospel. It's also probably noteworthy that Titus was instructed to teach the older women he was instructed to teach the older men and he was instructed, as we'll see in a second, to teach the younger men, but it was the older women who were instructed to teach the younger women. Maybe part of this was context with Titus. He was a young single pastor and so there's some wisdom here and how he interacted with the younger women, but also there is power with the, when the older teach the younger. And so what should you teach them? Teach them how to be a powerful presence in the church as younger women. And what does exactly that look like? Well, on to the power of the younger. They, verse 4, the older women, can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children. The Christian home was a totally new concept on the island of Crete, it was a pagan society. And so for a young woman saved out of paganism, this was a total paradigm shift, a brand new way of seeing marriage and family. And in the day of arranged marriages where love was learned and grew over time or didn't, a woman who was truly and deeply loving her husband and children would have stood out like a brilliant gospel light. And so Paul makes commitment to family the highest priority for a young wife. Now, obviously, not every young woman is married or has children. So if you are unmarried or not a mother, just consider whatever the proper implications are for you here. But if you do plan on being married or having children someday, then you should definitely take note here. So the younger women are to love their husbands and love their children. As is the case with husbands, the first vocation of a young wife is to display the gospel by the way that she loves her husband and the way she loves her children. And because the false teachers on the island of Crete were, quote, ruining whole households, as we saw last week by their false teaching, reminding the church of the priority of family was probably more necessary than ever at this time. But honestly, nothing has changed. False gospels are ruining our families, so we must also give special attention to this. He continues, urge the younger women to be self-controlled and pure. When you have young children, I don't know how else to say this other than it is crazy. I went over a friend's house the other day. I don't have young children anymore. My youngest is nine. I'm like, praise God, we're past that phase. I went over a friend's house the other day. They got like four kids from the ages of like two to 11. And I walked in to pick up my son who was there. And immediately two little dogs attacked my legs. And then a little child attacked my leg. And then I walk over to the kitchen and the four-year-old says, can I go on your back? Jumps on back. I look up. The 11-year-old is making dinner for everybody. Peanut butter and jelly just spread all over the kitchen. The wife is sick. Kids are too crazy. She's sick in bed. The husband is trying to like keep people alive. The other middle one over here is playing video games. And then I see a dog at eye level running across my face. Like, I don't know how. I don't know what it was on, but dogs just running. There's little kids. There's animals everywhere. And I was like, dude, this is your life? And he was like, Yeah, dude, every night, seven o'clock, this is the time when when this goes down. Here's my point. If you are not careful, the chaos could literally take over your life, right? And so there is this encouragement here. By the way, I'm not saying the chaos took over their life. I'm just saying that I look at that and I'm like, yo, y'all better be careful. This could take over your life. And if you're not careful and you don't pay, pay special attention to it, chaos could ensue. And so there's this encouragement for younger mothers to create godly disciplines in their lives. As one theologian said, if parents do not discipline themselves, they cannot expect their children to grow up to be disciplined. It is the nature of that season of life. And so the word here, self-controlled, is actually tied to this word pure. Yes, it's talking about uh, uh, sexual constraint, yes. But it also refers refers to a faithfulness in relationship with husband, in relationship with God. The young married woman should be true to her husband in mind, in heart, and in action. And should be intentional about setting up disciplines in the home. He goes on, tell the older women to urge the younger women to be busy at home. Now, before anybody gets crazy with a controversial phrase like that, let me, just, let me just share with you what theologian John Stott says about this. It was just so helpful. He says, It would not be legitimate to base on this word either a stay-at-home stereotype for all women or a prohibition of wives being also professional women. What is rather affirmed is that if a woman accepts the vocation of marriage and has a husband and children, she will love and not neglect them. What he is opposing here is not a wife's pursuit of a profession, but the habit of being idle. So the idea here is twofold. One, if a young mom has an outside vocation, she should not prioritize that over loving her children and husband. And two, if she is a full-time at-home mom, she should not be idle at home. She should treat it like a vocation and so instead of being lazy with this home vacation she should be as the passage says busy with this home vocation and younger women you need to know if you're able to do this right now this is a privilege and a gift society wants to diminish this and like reduce the value of it and even condemn it altogether but it is a gift to your family and to your children and to the body of Christ for you to be able to do this. And God wants to meet you in that place. He doesn't want to, he's just like, oh, just get through this this crazy season. No, he wants to meet you in that place. There is purpose in that place. He wants to fill you with his presence and with his power in this very unique season. He wants to work his kingdom in and through you and your family and your home. You don't need to reject this. You don't need to feel weird about it. You can receive it with grace and walk in it with confidence. Next, the younger women are to be kind, which is actually connected to the previous phrase about working in the home, which makes me laugh because even though Paul was not married, no children. He knows that he needs to connect this phrase, be kind to uh, being at home for the moms. Because if anybody's ever seen a mom who's a full-time mom at home, somebody needs to help you be kind, right? Like if I did this job, there would be no hope for me. This is a difficult job. And so ladies, amen. You all need the power of the spirit to have grace with your children if you're at home full-time with them. Somebody say amen. amen. All the fellas, amen. <laughs> Paul is speaking truth here. He continues on for the younger women. Tell the older women to teach the younger women to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. I know that this could be a, a jarring phrase for some. So what does this mean? Well, it is not talking about inferiority or supremacy. We can't get deep into it right now, but quickly here. When you look at God's plan for husbands and wives all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, what you see is absolute equality in value and distinction in roles. You see headship and you see submission. Adam is created first and becomes the literal life source for Eve. And then it says that Eve is created as a helpmate. This is her role. Other passages talk about the role of the husband, but since our passage mentions the role of the wife, let me just speak to this. Here's why it's so important to understand the role of helpmate. Helpmate. It is the Hebrew word ezer, which is almost always used elsewhere in the Bible to describe God. God himself and when it's not describing God it's usually describing a strong military help this is not inferiority this is not weakness ladies this is the powerful image of God being revealed in you so God creates men and women equal and essential but different and unique Where it all gets messed up is when sin comes in. Sin is this entire thing. There was no dominance in authority before sin. There was no degradation in submission before sin. Sin came in and brought that, but that was not how God intended it. The good news is that when Jesus comes, he comes to redeem both of them. and In fact, Jesus becomes the model for both submission and authority. Both husbands and wives get to follow the way of Jesus in our roles in marriage. How does that play out? We can't talk about it this morning, but my wife and I did teach a message called the roles of marriage from Ephesians five, several months ago, which you can find on our website if you want more, you want to dig into this more, just go to our website where the podcast search, the roles of marriage. So after instructing the older women how they should instruct the younger women, Paul turns his attention to the younger men. The older women were to minister to the younger women, but Titus is to encourage and be an example for the younger men with whom he would have been able to identify easily with. First, he was to, verse 6, exhort them to do one thing. Similarly, encourage the young men to be Self controlled. Younger men are historically impulsive and passionate and ambitious. At times we are volatile, given to arrogance and excess. It's just one word here for the younger men, but it is pregnant with meaning. Younger men, you are to, by the grace of God, control your tempers and your tongues. You are to control your ambitions and your desires for material gain. And you are to control especially your appetites, including sexual appetites, which have so often led to to the demise of younger men. And you need to catch a few things here. First, By the grace of God and by the power of his spirit, self-mastery is possible. There would be no point in exhorting the younger men to do this if it were not possible. And so, fellas, you should be encouraged by that. This is not some impossible feat that you are being called into. Second, you should note from this that exhortation is a wonderful way to secure this kind of self-control, especially if it is the empathetic, supportive kind of exhortation of one man to another within the body of Christ. It is effective to exhort one another. So do it. And third, this kind of exhortation also has to be accompanied by example. We need models in our lives. They give us direction, challenge, and inspiration. Oftentimes, younger men don't even know how to ask for help or don't even recognize that they need it until you see it and you're like, oh, that's what it is. That's it. That's it right now. And so we must not only encourage, but also set an example. So Titus, as a younger pastor and leader in the church, was to live in such a way that his life would be like a spiritual dye imprinting itself onto others. It goes on, verse seven, and everything set them an example by doing what is good. Titus was to live as a sort of prototype for the other younger men by doing what was good. But Titus wasn't only to influence by setting an example, but also by teaching. You have to have the visual and the verbal, which are a powerful combination together. And his teaching was to involve three characteristics. And younger men, This is the pattern for all of us to follow. First, integrity. One who not only has godly characteristics or godly convictions and is not ashamed of them, right? That's wonderful. And that happens often in in, uh, our our youthfulness. We're like, oh, I believe this. And you start like, I'm going to argue to the death on this. And you kind of like do this thing. Oh, it's awesome, man. You have conviction. And when it's biblical conviction, Dude, that is a good start. That is a good start, but it's just a start. Integrity is when your actions also line up with those godly convictions. Second, seriousness. As with the older men, this doesn't mean that you don't smile. This doesn't mean that you don't uh, do things that make people laugh. That's not what this is talking about. It's not talking about stoic. It's talking about taking your life seriously. You take your calling to follow Jesus seriously you don't just live life haphazardly and like I don't know I'm just kind of see what happens you take it seriously you take self-control seriously and if you're single you take that freedom in your life seriously if you're married and have kids you take the role of being a husband seriously you take the role of being a father seriously maybe some of you younger men right now are in a season where you're just like oh I'm just like I'm just going to school or oh, I'm just working a job that seems like pointless and so the tendency is to kind of just be haphazard about it and just kind of be like numb about it and just have no real aim in life. I'm just going to see whatever happens. Oh, the real stuff will happen later. Maybe even your role at church, you're like, ah, oh, I do that thing, but it's really not that big of a deal. But I want to ask you, what would happen if you changed your mindset around that? What would happen if you, you viewed that with some seriousness? You took that seriously? I'd like to propose this, in fact. I'd like to ask you to consider your season of life that you're in right now as an assignment from your heavenly father. Because here's the deal. If you can't be faithful with what seems like just like a small, pointless thing, then you may not ever be entrusted with something bigger. This is the way that the kingdom of God works, right? When you are faithful with little, you are given more. And so I want to encourage you, even as little as it may seem, be faithful with that thing. God has entrusted that to you. Embrace the season that you are in, and I guarantee you, I I guarantee you, you will begin to see growth in your life. You will begin to see purpose in your life. You'll begin to see the kingdom purpose of what is going on, and you will begin to see fruit in this season of life. I love that this passage says, Titus encourage the younger men it doesn't say titus just teach the younger men or titus beat down the younger men make them feel bad it says encourage them you know what encourage means encourage means to put courage into younger men you need to hear this this is something you can do if you're feeling timid about it you're feeling scared about it, you're feeling intimidated by it, whatever it is Let this put courage into you today that these things are possible. And the last thing that was to characterize Titus' teaching was a soundness of speech. That is, those who teach others ought to teach that which is wholesome, pure, and true. And all of this, why? Older men and women, by the grace of God, live in this way. Why, though? Younger men and women live in this way. But why? Because this is the power of the whole. Paul finishes by saying, all of this, why? Verse 8, the end of verse 8. So that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. The point is that together we present a powerful collective witness to a watching world that even though they might oppose us, they will actually have nothing bad to say about us. That's the result of this kind of living. And in fact, as we'll see next week, this kind of living where we are all leaning into this, like every member ministry where we're all discipling one another, is so powerful that it actually has a way of drawing the lost and dying world to our savior. The truth is the world doesn't even know it needs saving, right? Before you know Jesus, you don't even realize that you need a savior. The world doesn't realize that there is a purpose way beyond what they could ever imagine, but they need to know. Our lives demonstrate this. I told you about the pelicans in Monterey, California, who had forgotten how to fish for themselves and had become malnourished, even some of them to the point of death. They had forgotten how to be who God had made them to be. But someone had a brilliant idea. They imported new pelicans from the south and brought them up north to Monterey These pelicans were birds who were accustomed to foraging for themselves. They were placed among their starving cousins in Monterey and the newcomers immediately started catching fish. Before long, the hungry dying pelicans followed suit and the famine was over. When their fellow pelicans showed up, Being who they were created to be, it acted as a signpost demonstrating to the dying pelicans who they were meant to be. Part of our role as a redeemed people is to be a signpost to the world, reminding them or showing them that they were created for relationship with God. We do this by the way that we live and even by the way that we interact with one another in the church this passage has laid out very practical but very difficult parameters for us to follow in order to create a powerful collective witness. Now, we can't do this, any of this, without the grace and power of God. We need him. I look at this and I'm like, Lord, I need you. I need you. I need your power. I need your grace upon my life. Some of you have been treating your church experience and involvement like a free marketplace. You show up and you're like, I'll take a little of that, a little of that, and then you go home. But friends, God has not saved you to, to spectate or to just consume. He saved you to participate You are a vital part of what allows the body of Christ to become a powerful witness to the lost and dying world around us. And so I want to invite you today, Christian, to give yourself to that, to surrender to that end, to make yourself available, to surrender your plans, to surrender your gifts, to surrender your time, to surrender this season of life no matter what stage of life you find yourself in. Let's pray to that end. Father, we recognize our need for you as we look at these things. And so we ask now that you would help us, God. We confess That we need your grace and your power on our lives. We don't want to waste our lives. We want to lean into our season, our stage, our place. So we ask that you would work these things in and through us even now. As we move into this part of our gathering, everything up until this point has led here. This is the part now where we respond to things that that God is doing in our lives or things that we have heard, things that have hit us, every single one of us. As we read a passage like this, it it hits us. Something today probably hits you. And so I want to invite you to respond to that now. And there's a few ways that we can do that. First of all, the prayer team is on the right and the left of the stage. they are wearing these prayer lanyards. These are people that we, we know and we trust, people that I would go to to pray for me. They will pray for you for whatever is going on in your life. But if today you've maybe experienced some conviction, like, oh, wow, that's, like, that's an area where I just, I need to like, Redirect myself. The Bible says not only to confess to the Lord, but to confess to one another. There is power when we confess to one another. I want to invite you to do that. I want to invite you to, you know, maybe just go to them and say, I just, man, I need the power of the Spirit. Will you lay your hands on me and just ask the Lord to just fill me with a Spirit afresh? I, I need grace. I need new eyes or a new vision to see this season of my life and my stage of life. They are there to pray for you. Secondly, the communion elements are up front. When we take the bread, we eat of it, we drink the cup. One of the things that we are confessing is, Jesus, I could have never done this. I am saved because of what you did. What is beautiful about taking communion in the context of this passage today is that as you take it, you remember Colossians that says, yes, but in the same way that you are saved, you have to live. In the same way that you could have done nothing to be saved, you can do nothing to be refined like this and to live out this holiness except trust and surrender, which is exactly what you had to do to be saved. You got to trust, surrender. Just trust and surrender. And So as you take the cup, as you take the bread, remember, Lord, I need you. Gosh, I need you, Lord. I need you. The gospel wasn't just to save me. The gospel is to sanctify me. The gospel is to work your righteousness in and through me. And lastly, I want to encourage you to come and take a posture of praise or a posture of surrender before the Lord today on the carpets. And here's why I want to encourage you to do that. Something happens in us when we physically change postures. It helps. It's like our body is leading our heart. <laughs> it's like it helps our hearts to get to that place. And as I look at the lives of people around me who embody these things from this passage of scripture and embody this kind of godliness, you know what one characteristic is I see in them? I see a life fully surrendered. They have they have open hands with their time, with their plans, with their futures, with their resources with their uh, uh, gifts, their talents, with their bodies, their stuff, their health, they're just like open. It's just like whatever you want, God. I want to encourage you to come and take a posture of surrender and say whatever you want, God, whatever you want. And as we sing together, can we, can we all just collectively say, Jesus, we, we need you. Jesus, we need you. We surrender all of our plans and all of our stuff. And we just say, Jesus, you're you're the one. It's all for you. It's all because of you. Be the, the power. Be the fire. Be the water. Be everything that we need in our lives, Lord. Here we are. Let's do that now.